Howdy, friends. Listen, before we jump in, check this out. We've got some exciting news. As you know, Peter and I work for Bottle Rocket, and we would love for you to join our team. Listen, we're a work-from-wherever company, and we're self-managed vacation. Not to mention, you get to work with great people. Take, for example, Peter and I. It sounds great, right? So if you are ready to do the best work of your life, and join an extraordinary team. Hit the link in the show notes to see our current open positions and apply today. Hello, welcome back to Liftoff by Bottle Rocket, an Ogilvy experience company. I am Tony Dosat. I am Peter Clayman. With a 20-year history of progressive leadership roles at Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM, our guest has built, grown, and scaled cloud businesses and served as a key force in helping drive cloud strategy, adaptation, and enablement on a worldwide basis for customers, ranging from Fortune 500 enterprises to startups. In addition to her primary focus on customer success and go-to-market strategy, she has also led numerous policies, programs, and outreach efforts aimed at building trust in the cloud and addressing data privacy, ethics, and security challenges associated with these emerging technologies. And this is just the tip of the iceberg with our guest. So with that, it is our honor to have on today, Harini Gokul. Harini, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tony, for that kind introduction. And hello, Peter, it's great to be here. You know, more than anything today, we want to talk a little bit about some of the most pressing issues we're seeing today. And I think one of those is this notion of the future of work. So if we look at pre-pandemic numbers, we're seeing roughly 3% of jobs in the United States being remote first. I'm not going to say fully remote, right? Like, uh, I think we're going to call it remote first for now. But now we're seeing in excess of 15%, if not more. And we're seeing this slow return to urban centers, a more hybridized work environment. And frankly, we're seeing huge rifts emerge, whether that's across banking, where there's an expectation of the nine to five, all the way to companies like ours that are work from wherever first. So you can be remote first across the whole country. I think, you know, you've been at the center of this with your work with Microsoft. Curious to kind of just get some of your thoughts on how you see the future of work and how you kind of evaluate the current state of where we're at. Great. No, I love that question, Peter. We're coming out of two years of, uh remote first working. So it's a great question. And I always think these episodes seek to teach us something. If I've learned nothing from my two years, then it's a missed opportunity, right? And my experience at Microsoft, I spent uh, seven years managing 13 countries out of Western Europe. And that was a true sort of experiment in working remotely 10 years ago. Um, and I've carried those lessons with me as I've moved through my career, because I think it's important where I start. It's important to start by understanding what is the job to be done and where is the talent to do it? I think that's one of the first questions we have to talk about. Um, in my perspective, there's talent everywhere. But opportunity is necessarily not everywhere. And that has resulted in the divide that you see here, where we lack uh, 
where there is such a growing gap. There is a gap today that's rapidly growing between the coast and the center of our countries, between our country, uh, emerging countries and more mature markets. And to me, that is the opportunity the pandemic has given us to bridge this gap, to agitate, advocate about making sure that opportunity goes where our talent is, that people have an opportunity to live up to their potential regardless of the zip code, the city or the country they live in. So that's where I start first. The second thing that I think about when I think about the future of work and workforce transformation is there are so many layers to this, right? And we have to be deeply thoughtful about unpacking some of this. The talent piece is one we talked about. The second thing is making sure that everybody in the workforce today has an opportunity to continue participating in the workforce to the best of their ability. You've, we've, the great reshuffle or the great resignation is top of mind for many of us. Thankfully, I'm seeing the great reshuffle, but I know there's a case where so many women, women of color have dropped out of the workforce. We are losing a generation of CEOs and presidents because women just had to step back from the workforce to take care of their children, to take care of aging parents and to take care of household needs. And so the second question I'll ask is, how do we make sure that we are stopping that attrition? We are being intentional in having programs and policies that stop that attrition. The third thing I will say is what the pandemic and this remote first environment we've had, what lessons has it taught us? As we go back into the new world of work, right, this new post-pandemic world, what have we learned in terms of being more equitable? What have we learned in, in, in learning what capabilities really make you succeed at work? And I'll give an example, right? Um, Many of us who did well during the pandemic and our customers who did well showed a lot of um, capability to, uh, for ambiguity, right? The opportunity to sort of wade through things, even when we didn't know where that was going, to ask questions, collaborate better with people. And to me, those are skills and capabilities that we have to deeply think through as we hire the next generation of workforce. Um, not just looking at the right four-year degree or the schools they went to or the networks they belong to, but what are these soft capabilities that belong in a human-first workplace? The ability to listen, the ability to acknowledge, the ability to collaborate, the ability to work through ambiguity, the ability to have grit and resilience are just few that come to mind. So I think we have an opportunity to think very differently about talent, about recruiting, about how you set people up for success. And finally, the conditions you set people up for success in, right? What aids do they need at work? How do you create workspaces that are that create fearless innovation, even in a remote first environment? How do you make sure everybody participates? Let me pause there. I could not agree with you more on all of it. Um, but the thing that strikes me the most in doing a lot of hiring, interviewing, et cetera, with the team here, is this idea of breaking down barriers that used to exist when we used to exist as a, I mean, primarily Dallas-only company. And now we are all over. Um, and we're opening it up to such broad, different, diverse talent that we would not have even had the opportunity to work with without the pandemic. So these lessons learned and this, um, 
I don't know if it's, I don't know if like, if it's redefining like what equity means in the workplace or opportunity, but I'm fully on board. And especially with the, I, look, maybe I'll get myself in trouble, but maybe I won't. I don't care where you went to college or even if you went to college. I care about the human, the person, the experience they bring in their life or their work life and those soft skills that are so intangible. And I think you really nailed it there. At least that's what I got out of that. Maybe I'm, I'm filling it in with some of my own passion there, but I'm, 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 I'm right there with you. Love it, Tony. No, I think that is the sea change we've seen in the future of work, right? Where we sort of think about what a workplace that represents our customers look like. And it is many different yeah. things full of sort of the diversity of skills. And then we, once you get them into place, that's just job starting, right? Hiring the right people is so important, but that is when it starts. How do you make sure they are thriving in the workplace? What do they need in order to be fearless, to bring their full mm. self to work and be super successful? Mm. What's the, what do we as workplace leaders, what do we have to be held accountable to? What do we need to deliver on? And I think it's a leadership question, not just a management question to say, who do we want to show up as? So people, everyone, regardless of your what your skills are, if you're helpful to my customers, you should be able to find a home with me. And how do I put in place systemic mechanisms and programs? Affinity groups are one example. There are many others, right? Um, and what data do I track? Velocity of promotions, velocity of growth. Mm. How do I make sure that I put the right systems in place and track the right things to make sure that my workplace, that my hiring, that the people I've hired are actually thriving in the workplace? That's a great point, too, because I do think at least at the beginning, there's some shooting at the hip. Mm -hmm. No, where some frogs. Yes. Yes. Where now we have a we have an opportunity to do sort of a two year retro. What's working? What's not? And if we really are living up to what we say we are doing or want mm -hmm. to do, which is a huge thing as well, because a lot of people I find probably there's a lot of lip service and there's a lot of won't this look great <laughs> if we say we do these things. Yeah, I love what you said, Tony, for multiple different reasons. And I'll, I'll share three things. One, I agree. I think we're all learning. Right. When this when this pandemic started and in a cup in two weeks, we all sort of were up and running from our homes and taking care of customers who are perhaps not always as tech savvy as we were. Right. So it was this incredible effort to get up and going. And we we equipped ourselves with the fundamentals of what we think we needed to be successful, productivity equipment, you know, um, home office equipment, that sort of thing. I think a year in, we started realizing that it was this required investment in many other ways, right? As an example, how do we provide wellness investments for our teams and our people in a way that truly acknowledged where they were and the challenges they were facing? And how do we build community and collaboration in a remote world? You know, what were the social nuances and the practices of gathering? Who spoke first? How do you make sure all voices are heard? I think those were the questions you have to start asking to make sure you understand the lessons learned, right? So first you're sort of just like figuring it out. Then you have an opportunity to take a checkpoint and say, let's ask some questions, see where we are. Mm -hmm. And then to your point, I think we need to, 
then say, how do we make these changes real? Beyond talk, right? Talk is cheap, walk is hard. And we could all show up on a Zoom call and say the right things about take care of yourself. But what is needed is going beyond that and saying systematically, how do I put some of these into play? So as an example, on my teams, we do wellness days, right? Which are an opportunity for people on the team to just take a day off when they need it, how they need it, could be half a day, a full day, to do something that invests in themselves. It could be gardening, Mm. paying your taxes, if that's what it is. (laughs) But it does not have to be productive training class that you have to show up for, right? This is truly just an investment in your day. Mm. And my full belief is we need to be at a place where wellness days shouldn't be a thing. I shouldn't have to do it. But we have to, right? Because we have to stop and say, I understand that working in the pandemic feels like a 24 by 7 laundry cycle where you just you're going back to back to back. I had employees who lived in little studios in the Bay Area who told me, Harini, on a Friday night, I don't know where to put my laptop away because it's right. My office is my bedroom, is my kitchen, is my studio. Yeah. Right. So it's a real challenge, regardless of the demographic you're in. You could be single in a studio going. And and the conclusion where we arrived was lock it up in your closet and take it out on a Monday morning. You know what? That's a great point. And, and, and to add to that, I have a, a nice size house here in, in Texas. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to afford than in San Francisco studio. But I bring my computer with me, even though I have a studio set up here, like recording studio. I, I bring my laptop throughout the house. So even though the, the, the footprint of a studio apartment is smaller, the problem still exists, even yeah. if you have a larger house. Because I bring it with me. Yeah, so it's converging, right? Your lives are converging. And Mm. how do you disentangle yourselves to make sure that you are taking care of yourself so you are able to take care of others, your teams, your customers? So self-care and wellness is a big theme um, Mm -hmm. that I am acting on, that I believe in. Um, And I think it's one one of the pandemic impacts one of the impacts of the pandemic that people internalize into our workplaces for a long time to come i think that is huge and i i won't i won't belabor this because i want peter to get in here but um it's it's odd how we we went from a huge event that affected us globally in business and our personal lives mental health you name it it impacted us and now we're just okay get back to normal and I don't right. think that we collectively took time to say, wait a minute, <laughs> let's process some of this. Anyway, Peter. Yeah, well, I, I know I'm, you got some as goodness. you expected, Tony, I'm going to take it a different way. I know you will. And, I'm, and, I, and, I, I, and yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, something you said to really, really struck me, which is about equity. And I think one of the under touted facts of equity early on, you said talent is everywhere. Opportunity is not everywhere. Right. And one of the parts of equity is if we look across the United States, job growth, especially high wage job growth has been concentrated in cities. Mm -hmm. And then I look to like enclaves that are kind of the retreat areas, the huts in New York's right. Or these Lake Tahoe where you could still live somewhere but on the weekends, you could take a three-day weekend, things like that. 
But that's still the manifestation of this city supremacy. And what I'm starting to see now is more regionalization. I mean, Boise, Idaho, well, now I know that Microsoft has a huge office there and they've been investing in the region for a long time, but Bozeman, Montana, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we even see parts of the Denver area, which big city still, but we have geographic variation across 100 miles north-south here in this region. Do you kind of see this opportunity to start providing a way for what historically was large organizations who majority of spend associated with salary was concentrated in that city, being able to help revitalize areas across the country? Because it's not, you know, what we learned, and I know this is a very long question, so I'm apologizing ahead of time. But the reason why Eric Gartner wants every New Yorker back at their desk is the New York City economy runs on the fact that there's a whole services layer built on top of office workers who do not live in the city. Right. And yes. that money could very easily be distributed across a thousand cities in the United States where you could have a thousand service workers who help enable those individual success who are remote workers who provide in their local community, whether that's food delivery or services or all those other things. Like, is that the opportunity ahead of us is actually drive equity across the country and reduce the metropolitanization of our industrial centers? Well said, well said, Peter. And I agree with that. I think there has been a disproportionate concentration of talent, of resources, and as a result, created inequities across our country and actually globally, right? I lived in the Netherlands and I saw how the Netherlands and Ireland became these bastions for tech. Um, but why not Belgium right next to the Netherlands, right? So I've spent a lot of time over the past decade or so thinking about why some cities and why some areas end up becoming destinations. And what do they have that others don't or need to look at or have not invested in. And I think of this, I tend to be an optimistic person. So I think of this as a conversation that other cities should be listening to and saying, mm. what's the anatomy of good look like? When an Amsterdam becomes successful, when um, Seattle becomes successful, of course, the Valley, um, what, what is with those cities and what should I learn from? What's a framework in there? And in my perspective, there are maybe three or four things, right? It starts with talent and that starts with academics and students. So if you look at all of the places we've just talked about, they all have great educational institutions, public and private. If you take Seattle, the city I know most about, I've lived here on and off for 20 years now. The University of Washington is a behemoth, right? It was, it's one of the largest public universities in the country and clearly the premier institution for Washington state. And it started by attracting students from all over the world. It's got a very large international population. So there's a diversity of talent there. So that's one, we'll come back to U University of Washington in a minute, but it helps to have a great educational institution, multiple if you can. Second, it comes down to an ecosystem that supports multiple industries. Again, let's take mm. Seattle as an example, and I'll then give you uh, the Netherlands and Amsterdam as well, right? We have a port environment. We were on the water. So there's a very thriving maritime port culture. 
we are surrounded by forests. So you had the old world warehouses, sort of the logging industries, but you had all of that forestry environment going on. And then you also had a great healthcare center, right, with the Gates Foundation, all of the biotechs, the uh, Fred Hutchinson, which was the cancer care center. So all of those meant, and then you had Boeing set up here, um, which, which, which was really the mainstay of the economy for a long time. All of this attracted different talent, gave them opportunities to cross-pollinate and exposure to different industries. And so by the time you attract talent that's innovating, that's growing, that's able to sort of pattern match across different industries, and so the opportunities to innovate, the opportunities to grow, the opportunity to be entrepreneurs increases, I believe. And then you need a couple of stalwarts, right? There was Boeing, there was then Microsoft that came about, and then the flywheel starts to go where you have success, you have scale. Once you have that success and scale, then you are able to give back to your communities. The Microsoft founders, many of them gave back to University of Washington, established really advanced state-of-the-art computing departments, you know, PhD grants, and they created an environment that would give even more talent that would go work for them and then spin out. So maybe 10 more than uh, 10 of the top Seattle startups are Microsoft X founders, right? Are Microsoft X employees. And so that creates a flywheel. And then because it's a culture that attracts different talent, you keep get having fresh talent. So all of this to say there are at least four components required for success. You need great educational institutions. You need an environment or a landscape that attracts many different industries. You need a couple of stalwart sort of mainstays to go big and scale. And that's going to create a flywheel that you can benefit from. Um, I'll add one more to that. Please. Government, federal government money. Boeing got a tremendous amount of capital from the federal government in the form of defense contracts, which really bankrolled some of their early stage development. And probably the same is true for Microsoft. But, you know. That one's a little harder to unravel, but you know, hey. Microsoft was not, you're, Boeing, you're probably right. I don't know enough about Boeing. I cannot comment on it, but absolutely. I think you need, we have great um, legislative uh, support for us and um, in Congress and here, and I'm very grateful for the representation of Washington. I think Washington's led the way in sustainability. We banned plastic bags. We are always focused on growth and innovation and equity, and so- um, I'm very proud of the legislative representation we have. Um, the other, I was just going to reflect on something else, Peter, maybe, and I'll pause there after I say this, which is, I've been, the question you ask is so important today, because back to where we started, right, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. The barriers to entry for what it takes to found find of, of to be a co-founder, to create a startup has reduced dramatically, right? With, with Amazon and others produce, giving you cloud capabilities at, um, at a pace and at costs that you cannot really experience. You could not have experienced even a decade ago. So I see the talent. I was just speaking to a gentleman who runs Seamless HR um, um, and it's an African startup similar to Workday. And his biggest problem is finding the right talent that has scaled. And it's because he's lacking the schools. He's lacking everything we just talked about, right? He's lacking the school's environment. He's lacking a few mainstays that have turned out the big scale talent that can come in and run his scale business, right? He's lacking those basic fundamentals that will help him 
force multiply and grow. And so I think we should be very, when we think about investments in the future, we should think about, do we have the right schools? Are we attracting the right talent? And are we building breakout companies that'll help create the flywheel? Love that. That is, and we have so much more to talk about. We could talk about the implications of climate planning. Man, there's so much here. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So we have to move to our final section. Okay. Uh, two sections here. First one is a lightning round. We're going to ask you a question. You can only respond with one word. Okay. So that's lightning round. Uh, I'll start it off. Tony will go and then back to you. So um, when you think about driving regional innovation, what's the word that comes to mind, right? How do you think of that spirit that embodies that city that you visit and you feel that that essence of regional innovation, that there's possibility and promise in this area? Universities. Great. Define Silicon Valley in one word. Traffic. Fair. Fair. <laughs> uh, when a you know uh, in the future, when a worker is in an environment that they love, that is mindful of their needs, what emphasis do you do you want them to kind of what passion do you want them to feel every day? What emotion is probably the best way to describe that? I'm living my best life. That's awesome. Tony, you want to do the last question? Sure. This is a question that we ask every guest and you can expound upon it. It's not one word answer. And it is what non-digital object or thing that you own or possess means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? My books, I would have said my son, but I don't own my son in any which way he owns me. Um, my books, I've, I am an only child and books were my constant comfort. Um, they took me to worlds, they gave me possibilities, they gave me options. Um, you know, I was destined to be in an arranged marriage at 21 and have a great life as some hedge fund manager's wife. And they gave me the possibility to dream that I could be educated, that I could earn my own living, I could be successful, and that my voice meant something. Wow. They are life-changing, aren't they? They changed mine for sure. Yes. That's incredible. I think, yes. You know, I didn't have a passport for a long time. We didn't travel a lot. And books were how I traveled. You know, I read everything from sort of English literature to, you know, French books. And they gave me a window into worlds that I could not have gone otherwise. So for a girl growing up in India, uh, it, it truly gave sort of my wings. And it gave me the courage to go ask questions, ask for more, and to try figure out who I was. Um, and I'm, I'm, all I need are my books. Isn't it fascinating now that you're so well-traveled that you're filling up that passport, a, a little book itself, isn't it? Multiple passports, yes. Now I'm Look a proud American citizen and a resident of other countries. And uh, I, I truly think we all, you know, the gift of books and the gift of words is so important. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and uh, that would be my sort of long-term dream is to have a library everywhere, to have people access books and words and uh, other opinions, grown up or not, right? Think about it. We all live in bubbles of our own. We tend to associate with people who think like us. And books are often one way to reach out to opinions and perspectives that we don't share and get educated by them. So true. Well, Harini well before we wrap, Harini, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. We're going to pop that link in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, and I wish you much success. Thank you so much. Thank you.